Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at election law. With this month's midterms more or less in the books, who's suing who and why, and what does it all mean for the future of democracy? Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. So today we have on the podcast Spencer Overton, a law professor at George Washington University who specializes in elections. And we invited him on because election law is, for better or worse, a hot topic right now. Ever since Bush v. Gore in 2000, but especially in the past two years, elections are playing out not just in ballot boxes, but also in the courts. Is that a good or bad thing? We'll get to that in a bit. But first, Spencer gave me a rundown of the most significant lawsuits that have been filed since the midterm elections three weeks ago. The most action is taking place in Arizona, where two Republican statewide candidates, Carrie Lake and Abe Hamaday, both of whom lost their bids, have filed lawsuits. Lake's suit is seeking records from an Arizona county on how the election was run there, while Hamaday is seeking an injunction to stop Arizona's Secretary of State from certifying his race. Additionally, officials in Cochise County, Arizona, are being sued for not certifying the results of the election before a state-imposed deadline. In Texas, Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton has sued Harris County, a Democratic stronghold in the Lone Star State, over its handling of the midterm election. And Overton says there are also left-leaning groups who filed suits as well. Civil rights groups in Pennsylvania and Washington State are litigating to try to loosen their state's requirements for certifying mail-in ballots. In all of these situations... Fundamental questions of voting and democracy will be decided in courts by judges. I started off my discussion with Overton by asking him whether this is really the way this is supposed to work. The courts have played a significant role and a more significant role in part due to the increased litigation that we see. Over the past two decades, spending on legal expenses has increased from $5 million to $66 million in terms of uh, politics. Uh, In this election cycle, before Election Day, over 100 election lawsuits were filed across the country, and this is the most ever before an election. Yeah, recently the uptick has come from conservative groups. They filed three times more lawsuits than two years ago, with a particular focus on challenging mail-in voting access, such as limiting the number of drop boxes or not counting mail-in ballots that are undated. Uh, Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon reflected on this when he said, quote, we're 100 times more prepared now, we're gonna adjudicate every battle, end of quote. Progressive groups also brought lawsuits to expand access to voting, such as preventing voter intimidation at at ballot drop boxes in Arizona. But I would say if we look at the history, uh, progressives have been more likely to use litigation, let's say to keep polling places open because of long lines or or other factors. And really in this cycle, uh, this has been an added tool of conservative groups. They've really increased uh, their their activism here. And to a certain extent, for conservatives litigation in 2022, it was definitely important for them, but it really could have been a dress rehearsal for 2024. It gave their lawyers an opportunity to run through litigation strategies before election day, on election day, and after election day. It also gave their election monitors a chance to get familiar with the election process, how to take pictures, gather evidence they could use to challenge uh, elections. Uh, And so I think that it 
you know, there has been an increase and that increase has been on the conservative side um, in, in defense of conservatives. I think they'd say that uh, Democrats have used the litigation and lawsuits for a long time and that, you know, they're basically just just catching up uh, would, would be the, the argument on their side. Are the courts set up to do this, though? I mean, I, I, there are a lot of situations where, um, you know, there's a dispute and I, I hear judges say, you know, this is not what uh, the court is supposed to be deciding. Is this one of those situations where, uh, you know, we should this is a political decision and not something that a a person in a black robe on a, sitting on a bench should be, you know, determining the outcome? Well, I know that some of us are concerned about lawsuits by political operatives determining the outcome of election rather than voters determining the outcome of an election. It's understandable. We don't want lawsuits to allow election rules to become an, an extension of gerrymandering where the politicians select the voters rather than the voters selecting the politicians. The decisions that were once made by state and local election officials are being made now by many judges. Is, is that a, do you think that's a good thing? I, I think that there, you know, I, I don't mean to be too academic, but there are a couple of, of aspects to this, a couple sides to this. Uh, you know, while we definitely want voters to select our politicians rather than judges, we've recently seen an uptick in violence and intimidation against election administrators, elected officials and voters. I would say that lawsuits are certainly better than violence and kind of the rule of law is certainly better than violence. I think the on the on the other hand, many of these lawsuits are brought in state court. There is a movement within conservative circles about election denialism and a whole host of other premises that go with that. And there's it's only a matter of time before state judges who, you know, are up for retention or election or re-election feel a connection between their political aspirations and the decisions that they are making. You know, in the past, federal judges have been really important in conservative circles, much more so than progressive circles in terms of choice and in life and a variety of other issues there. But we could see a situation where state judges in the future uh, feel as though there is a litmus test with regard to them. And we could see, you know, there's the danger of politics uh, infecting political judgments, uh, particularly in state courts. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, 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 uh, you know, state judges will be deciding a lot of these issues and they're a lot less insulated from the political process than federal judges. Right. Um, finally, I wanted to ask you about election attorneys because a lot of attorneys listen to this podcast. If you're an election law attorney, and let's say you're on the progressive side, or let's say you're even on the conservative side, but you're not an election denier. Um, mm -hmm. Has the election denial movement kind of tainted your entire field? And and what I mean by that is, you know, if you're an attorney who uh, is filing a lawsuit and, you know, you think it's meritorious, maybe it is meritorious, is there a sort of boy who cried wolf situation where, now, anyone who is challenging the outcome of any election is seen as an election denier. 
Is that something that we could, a problem that we could see happening moving forward? I certainly think that there is a credibility and boy who cried wolf concern with regard to the rise of election denialism. I think there's something else, though, that we have to acknowledge and many people aren't acknowledging that there's this concerted effort to discount the legitimacy of democracy, and it poses a real threat to the future of multiracial democracy. Our nation is becoming more diverse. Cultural anxiety is prompting some Americans to question the legitimacy of our democracy. Online platforms magnify false claims about election fraud, so they're more mainstreamed. So it's the fear of fraud rather than actual evidence of fraud that justifies poll challengers, restrictions on voting, and, and ultimately violence in some cases. Our, our current Supreme Court has, to a certain degree, been complicit in this in terms of decisions that uphold restrictions when there's no evidence of widespread fraud, and, and as well as some other decisions discounting the Voting Rights Act. We've got to recognize that the current institutions that we have were not set up to grapple with the challenges of a multiracial democracy and figure out systems that allow for all communities, including those experiencing cultural anxiety, to work together, forge new coalitions, and come together to make policy decisions to address our most pressing challenges. So, yes, there is this, uh, you know, there is this question of what will happen in 2024 and what is the positioning in terms of litigation and you know how does one uh, anticipate moves on the other side in terms of litigation strategy. I think that there's this deeper question. I definitely understand the attraction of being colorblind and you know we definitely want to recognize the humanity of everyone. But if we don't recognize the significance of issues like racially polarized voting or this kind of zero sum competition for power, uh, this kind of belief that if someone else has more influence or power, my group has less, or this notion of elections being this referenda on our identity. Uh, hey, we've got a black president and so race is not an issue and we've overcome or this is a rejection somehow of kind of my values and the country I once knew, you know, we kind of got to get beyond that and really acknowledge that those are issues and develop systems and platforms and institutions, whether they be, you know, courts, legislatures, or even tech platforms that can recognize these challenges and allow us to kind of move through them and share power. But that's that's really that's a really interesting idea. I mean, it's because everyone, you know, year after year, it's always that, you know, voting is is the most important thing you'll ever do. Voting is so important. And, and that's the message that we get, that voting is incredibly important. But it sounds like what you're saying is that we've gotten to a place where voting is too important. It's tied up in people's identity. And when that happens, if you lose, you can't accept it because this is a blow to your own identity. Right. And part of it, though, is the kind of winner take all zero sum type of system we set up where, you know, if you don't get 50 plus one, you're a loser. Right. And you've got nothing. And 
you know, is that really fair? You know, don't you want a scenario where if somebody has 48% of the votes, they've that group has at least some say in terms of the decision making and is at the table uh, here. And so part of it is the setup and the structure and so kind of rethinking those structures and what's needed. And I don't have all the answers and there's not a silver bullet. This is just like law and economics is like a field that requires a lot of people thinking about things. This concept of what's the future of multiracial democracy and law you know, is a, a field that requires, uh, you know, uh, technicians and political scientists and legal scholars and, uh, you know, a, a host of um, a host of, of, of thinkers to, to think this through. Yeah, well, this is really fascinating. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Spencer. I really appreciate it. That was Spencer Overton talking about election law. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Check out our website, news.bloomberglaw.com, for all the latest. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.